may be seated. Take out your Bibles, opening once again to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and last Sunday we began a, a, a new sermon series taking us through the, the book of Revelation, and we pick up and continue um, for the first several weeks of this study. We're, we're going to be focusing on, on a lot of introductory matters. We're going to be intentionally, deliberately um, focused on the introduction because it really does, John himself as the author of this letter, clues us in, in the introduction of what he's writing, of, of how we are to handle it in going forward. I think as we've talked about in the last several weeks, uh, I think that's been a, a major problem when it comes to dealing with the book of Revelation, why it becomes such a, a monstrous, overwhelming thing to us. We've, we've kind of taken it upon ourselves to figure out what it means. But we're going to let John himself speak to us and tell us as much as he wants to tell us about his book. And last Lord's Day, we were focusing upon John's prologue, those first three verses in the book of Revelation. Let's, let's look at those three verses once again this morning. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Well, that's where we were last week, and I want to take just a few moments this morning to, to go back and, and just kind of uh, plow the ground. It's been a week, and plow the ground of of these introductory comments and some of the things that we looked at. You know, one of the things that, that strikes us, and one of the things I was trying to do last week is frame how we view the book of Revelation. And you may, may remember a quote I gave you from Jim Hamilton, who said that encouraged us to see that the book of Revelation is the exclamation point at the end of a long sentence that is the Bible. And I think that's going to be so helpful for us in going forward, that the book of Revelation is the exclamation point at the end of a very long sentence that is the Bible. Now, this long sentence that Dr. Hamilton is talking about begins in Genesis 1-1 with God and creation, creation of human beings in his image to know him, love him, serve him, obey him, worship him, in those opening chapters, but also the fall of that man, the fall of man into rebellion against this God because of temptation because of, and, 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 and sin. And how God announces curses on the human race. He announces curses upon the serpent and upon humanity. He talks about that going forward there will be hostility. There will be uh, difficulty between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent. And it will continue on, on, and on throughout time. But there's also a promise, a hope that the seed of the woman will come and fix everything that has gone awry there in Genesis chapter 3. And that's where the sentence begins that is the Bible. And the sentence continues through the pages of the Old Testament as the unfolding of that promise that God made to Adam. It just con it continues to be revealed. When God makes his, his covenant with, uh, uh, with Abraham, it's, it's the same promise he makes to, to Adam there in the Garden of Eden. He just explains a little bit more. 
And then when God continues to confirm that covenant with Moses, it's the same covenant he made with Adam, but he's telling a little bit more than was previously known. And the covenant with David, and the covenant with Israel, and the new covenant. And and all throughout the Old Testament, all the, the narratives that we see is God unfolding more and more and more of what he meant in Genesis 3.15 when he was talking about this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's going to be ongoing, but the seed of the woman will come and have final victory. It's been unfolding more and more of that story. And then the, the coming of that seed of the woman is inaugurated in the Gospels when Jesus comes. He lives a life. He dies. He's resurrected. He raises it to the right hand of God. It's unfolded more and more in the New Testament epistles where the church of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ on earth is the seed of the woman. We are the seed of the woman, and we're carrying on the life and ministry of Jesus, but we're still in a world where we're in conflict with the seed of the serpent. You see, it's, it's, it, everything's just unfolding exactly as it has been. And the book of the Revelation is the exclamation point at the end of this long sentence that says to, to you and I, to the seven churches, that says, now understand this. This is the consummation of the story. This is how the story ends. And so it's, it's not, Revelation is not intended to be some difficult, overwhelming book that we look at, independent of everything that's come before it. It's the, the conclusion, the exclamation point. And as such, the book of Revelation explains to us how it is that God, through the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, fulfills those covenant promises that he made to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to you and I in the new covenant. How he goes about and ultimately brings it to pass to rescue and redeem his people, to defeat Satan, to rout evil, to restore the creation, and to eventually and for eternity he himself dwell in the midst of his people forever. That's what Revelation does. It's that exclamation point that says, even though we're still in a Genesis 3 world, and we, by grace, are seed of the woman. We are in Christ. Man, we are still butting heads with the seed of the serpent. And this life gets hard. But Revelation comes in with that exclamation point. But make no mistake, even in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of your affliction, in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your persecution, God wins through the triumph of his Lamb. That's the exclamation point. And John himself points us to this in these opening verses here. We saw last week in verse 1 that John here says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis. Apocalypse, despite modern thought, does not mean end of the world. The word apocalypse means a revelation, an unveiling, a disclosing taking something that was previously unknown or previously hidden or previously not understood and bringing it to clarity, bringing it to explanation, bringing it to to something now, oh, I see. So we can stop right there and say any handling of the book of Revelation that complicates it has, has completely missed what Revelation was intended to be. Revelation is intended to be a help to make things more clear, not more complicated, not more difficult. God is peeling back the veil, pulling back the curtain, revealing something to us that has previously been secret, how it is he's going to have final victory through the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. It all comes together. Everything in it is meant to be a revelation. Nothing in it 
is meant to be obscuring. Nothing in it is meant to be confusing. The book of Revelation is meant to be understandable. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ. It's from Jesus. It's about Jesus. And that makes perfect sense because everything that's come before it has been about Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, God created a world of people unto Jesus, for Jesus, for eternity. And so it makes sense that right here at the outset, when John says, I got some really weird stuff I'm going to bring up to you, but right off the bat, no, it's all about Jesus. And if anything, understanding of it takes you away from Jesus, you've, you've missed the purpose of my book. We also saw that it, it concerns things that must soon come to pass, and we grappled with that a little bit last week. We looked at various views that people have had about, well, what does that mean, the things that must soon take place? He's writing to seven churches, real churches, uh, soon in their day or soon in our day. And we talked about the various views and how the approach that we're using is an eclectic view, a view that takes some of the strengths of some of the various views and understands the book of Revelation in light of the totality of the book, in light of the totality of God's purpose of the Bible in our lives. We also learned that in, in communicating this book to his people, there's a, a chain of communication. God, the Father, communicates it to the Son, Jesus, who communicates it, we see here, to the angels, who communicate it to John, who communicates it to his servants. And his servants being the, the community of faith as a whole, the seven churches, but all churches throughout time. And, and, and how unique that is, the fact that it's communicated in such an extravagant way. We talked about when we're wanting to send a letter somewhere. If it's important enough, we're going to send it like that certified mail, right? We want to make sure it gets to its intended place. We're not going to toy around with it. Same thing here. This book of Revelation is so important, so significant, that this long line of communication speaks to the significance of the book and it's the importance of its message for our lives. We talked about that this, is, this book is an apocalyptic epistle, an apocalyptic epistle. Now, apocalyptic, we already said, means an unveiling, a revealing, not end of the world. It means showing something that was previously unknown, bringing something to bear. And this book of Revelation takes the form of a letter. We're going to see that a little bit more this morning as we look at verses 4 through 9. It's a letter that's written, but it is an apocalyptic letter which simply means it's not like any of the other letters we see in the New Testament. Right? We're familiar with the epistles and the letters that Paul writes, that John writes elsewhere. But this letter, it's, it's like that, but it's not. It's an apocalyptic letter, which means you can't interpret it as you do every other letter. And we talked about last week, it's kind of like when you travel to a, a, another country. right? You, you're, you're accustomed to the culture here in this country doing things a certain way. You know what's acceptable here. You know what's unacceptable here. And, and this is just what we're... But when you travel to a, a country you've never been to, do you expect them to speak English? Do, do you expect them to... What, that what you find acceptable here in this country will be acceptable to them in their country? Do you expect that you might have to adapt a little bit and kind of learn their, their culture and learn how they do things and, and learn so that when you go in, you don't offend anybody and that you don't... You don't undermine anybody, but that you actually kind of, you're trying to fit in. When it comes to understanding the various genres of scripture, you've got to do the same thing. Whether we're talking about narrative, whether we're talking about history, whether we're talking about gospel, whether we're talking about the epistles, 
you can't interpret every genre of scripture the same way. And when it comes to apocalyptic scripture, it's all the more true. You've got to learn the culture of the genre. You, you can't interpret, and this is what has led to so many just out of whack views of the book of Revelation. We try to interpret Revelation like we do narrative, like we do history. Where in those, you have a story, and it's one event, one event, one event. It kind of follows a chronology. Well, if you put that on the book of Revelation, you can make something out of it. But that's not what, how apocalyptic literature functions. So one of the things we're after in this study is to learn the culture of the book, to learn what, how it is John is communicating, and to learn as early on as we can how he's connecting his message and the, the images of it to our personal lives. One of the things we know, John is intending for this book to have an impression upon us, to leave us changed, to leave us different. That's one of the, the weaknesses in so many of the views of the book of Revelation, is that for many people, the book of Revelation is just, I'm just, it's, it's about curiosity. I want to know the future, and I want to know what's going to happen. And it's all about trying to read Revelation in one hand and current events in the other hand and trying to fit something together, which John had no concept of in his day. But what he is intending to do is for you and I to be impressed, to be transformed as we enter into his book. And then finally, we saw last week, there's a wonderful commendation that still to this point, I'm going to say this because I, I haven't come across it. There is a, a commendation that we don't see anywhere else in scripture there in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. The book of Revelation, I'm persuaded, is the most practical book in all of the New Testament. And that is a large statement to make. Revelation is not about filling our minds with knowledge. It, there's that, but it's about practically ministering to us where we're at in this Genesis 3 world and our constant battle against the seed of the serpent, a battle which every one of us this morning are in. And to varying degrees, to one degree or another, maybe some more so than others this morning, maybe next week it'll be completely different. But every one of us are dealing with suffering, illness, temptation, sin, hardship, affliction, and we're exhausted, and we're tired, and we're defeated, maybe humiliated, maybe discouraged, perhaps depressed. Some don't even want to get out of bed in the morning. May I submit to you, the book of Revelation was written for us in those situations. So this morning, as we build on that prologue, we turn to verses 4 through 9, where we're still in introductory matters. And if you picked up one of the sermon cards early on in the study, I had some sermon cards laying around. I think I may have even emailed it out to you. I've always had it in my mind to do that in the past, and the hesitation has always been, man, I'm forecasting out the pace I'm going to set. And I do that personally, but I've never made it public. And the reason is because inevitably I fall behind. And so if you picked up one of those cards, um, we're going to fall behind today. <laughs> so we didn't get very far into it. So I can't promise you you'll see one of them cards again in the future. But uh, we're already falling behind today. 
because there's so much here in, in, in particularly verse 4 and verse 9 that uh, we're going to have to spend multiple weeks with it. Let's look together at the text. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we'll stop there. We're not going to hit on everything in this passage. We'll be coming back to it next week and in subsequent weeks. But we're still dealing with introductory matters this morning. And this is kind of the section that would be referred to if verses 1 through 3 are the Prologue verses four through nine are kind of the salutation, where he is. It, this is where we see the that this takes the form of an epistle. It takes the form of a letter, uh, not unlike what we have seen in previous uh, New Testament letters. Revelation's great burden is to speak to suffering Christians who are suffering for their faith and in their faith, and to give them strength in order that they might continue to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ until their last breath. And the salutation is moving us in that direction. Our theme this morning just continues to be an introduction, but we're going to focus upon the historical context, because that matters. We really can't rightly understand the book of Revelation if we don't understand how it applied in their day, what was going on in their day. Because the fact is, the book of Revelation cannot mean to you and I today what it did not mean to them in their day. That's a basic rule of, of biblical interpretation. The book of, whatever book of the Bible, cannot mean what the author didn't intend it to mean. And so we want to go back and understand what in the world was going on around John and these seven churches he speaks of. And, 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 and how does it relate to them? And if it relates to them 2,000 years ago, how in the world, why, why are we going through it today? Because we're 2,000 years removed. So we want to think more about the historical setting of the book of Revelation into which this glorious word is poured into. And our focus this morning is not just to fill our heads with dates and times and authors and circumstance. It's to be as practical as we can. Let's look together. John here says in verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, and then he talks about himself more down in verse 9. Skip down to verse 9. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Last week we, we talked about this book is written by John. We just kind of threw that around. But it's not until verse 4 that, that John himself really identifies himself as the author of this book. He identifies himself as a servant of the Lord, a servant of God who 
functions to bear witness to Jesus Christ, which fits right into the, the gospel message, looking unto Jesus. It's all about him. It's always been about him. Now the apostles are in their, in their uh, New Testament ministry are pointing to Jesus, bearing witness to Jesus. And he's also in a season of life where he's being exiled for his faith. Now, when it says the author is John, I mean, that was a common name. And it certainly could have been the Apostle John, or it could have been any number of other people who carried the name John. But the fact of the matter is, internal evidence of the letter, when we compare this letter with the Gospel of John, and when we compare it to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Epistles of John, there are so many commonalities, common themes, common language. They're not the same. We interpret them differently because one is apocalyptic literature and one is epistle. But nonetheless, there's a lot of commonalities there that we see. The internal evidence of the letter suggests, I mean, this is the same guy who's writing these things. And plus, those in the first century, they themselves attributed it to the Apostle John as well, the one who knew Jesus, the one who walked with Jesus, the one who saw Jesus crucified, the one who saw him resurrected from the dead and raised to the right hand of the Father, the one who saw that. In the first century, Polycarp was one who knew the Apostle John personally. They had a friendship, a kinship. Their, their lives crossed paths. Polycarp was a little bit younger as, as uh, uh, the Apostle John was older and discipling. And then Polycarp's disciple, Irenaeus, who, who wrote a, a wonderful commentary in the book of Revelation, he himself attested that his own discipler, Polycarp, who knew the Apostle John, was convinced that John had written this letter. So there's no reason to suggest this is anyone other than John, the Apostle of Jesus Christ. And notice, not only does, does John announce who he is, he goes on to talk about more about to whom he's writing. And this matters significantly. To whom he's writing. We see there in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So he's writing to seven churches. And they're identified for us in verse 11. We don't have to guess. We don't have to, to try to figure this out in our head. Verse 11, they're listed for us. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the seven specific churches he's writing to. And these are real churches. Uh, you can map them out in, in the ancient world, and they're on a clockwise route. around the. Uh, you could follow it, trace it. Uh, in what was uh, today is known as Western Turkey, then it was known as Asia, but today on our map it would be around Western Turkey. And John is writing to these churches because he's familiar with them. They are familiar with him. They know his authority over them. They trusted him. Most likely they had previously received letters from him. So this was nothing unusual. This was nothing out of the ordinary. He had written to them, and he had some degree of responsibility of pastoring these churches even from afar. But here's what we have to wrestle with. Why was he writing another letter? What, what is going on that necessitates? He's already written quite extensively. Why is he writing another letter? And another letter of this crazy nature, apocalyptic epistle. Well, let's think about the circumstances that are going on historically around these seven churches. These churches, the seven of them, were under a season of great persecution and duress. The book of Revelation was written approximately around the year 95 A.D., and what's going on around that time is the first general persecution of the church under the Roman emperor named Domitian. Anybody heard the name Domitian before? 
Domitian was a, a Roman emperor who was known for being savage. All right, we talked about last week, there's a lot of crazy imagery in the book of Revelation. We're going to come upon various beasts. And, 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 you know, one of the great problems throughout church history is people have tried to assign identities to those beasts that really would have made no sense to John whatsoever or to those seven churches whatsoever. But one thing we can know for sure, Domitian would certainly fit one of those beasts because that was the context of what was going on in that day. He was one of the most despised villains of his day. Domitian, historically, is the seed of the serpent. He was one who hated Christians. He despised Christians. He was known for, for torturing well-respected citizens just to make a point that you don't want to mess with him. And he, he demanded that he be called God and Lord. As a Christian, they couldn't do that. So when they refused to do that, he would torture them and ultimately systematically kill them. He hated Christians in particular. That's historical reality. He is seed of the serpent. And the church of Jesus Christ being seed of the woman in that day. Now, it's important for us to understand when we look at historically what's going on in their day, again, we're reading it in the 21st century, Domitian is not the only beast in the book of Revelation. But the fact is, we can't understand the book of Revelation rightly if we don't understand its historical context and how it had already begun in Domitian's day and how these things were already unfolding, initiated in his day. And happily for you and I, when we look at apocalyptic epistle, the book of Revelation, we are not only reading history. Yeah, we want to take into mind the context of the day because it cannot mean in our day what it didn't mean in their day. So we have to take these things into account. But happily, the book of Revelation speaks to us in our day as well. One of the things we talked about last week is that symbolism is a major, major thing in the book of Revelation. And we're going to have to navigate some difficult waters when we come upon different things. What does it symbolize? It's never up to us to try to figure out what it is. John quotes from the Old Testament and alludes to the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writer. And it is not even close. What we do in understanding the symbolism is we, we take it where it has previously been used to symbolize. When we see him alluding to something that has previously been symbolized, we can draw it right in and know he's setting for us the foundation. And one of the things that we see early on here in this letter to the seven churches is his use of the number seven. This is not uh, us being sinister. All throughout scripture, the number seven symbolizes completion, fulfillment, something that has fully come to pass. And the reality is, I'd never thought about this until just a few years ago. John is writing to the seven churches. There were a lot more than seven churches in Asia. There were a lot more than seven churches that John ministered to in Asia. Why seven? On the circular route, there were churches in between the seven churches. Why seven? Why these seven 
John's choice under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is no accident. His choice of the number seven. Seven, we know, is a favorite number of the book of Revelation, of the book of Bible, signifying completeness, completion, and fullness. And just so you think, you see how Scripture does this for us. We can go all the way back to the creation account. Seven days of creation, and creation was completed. We can continue on in the book of Leviticus chapter 4. There's the sevenfold sprinkling of the blood. It's a sevenfold process that until all seven steps are completed, it's not completed. It's the seven steps that represent the completed action. We can read on. There's a seven-day duration of the festivals in the Old Testament. They lasted seven days. There's seven days of ordination. How many days did they march around Jericho before the walls came down? Seven. The length of period of cleansing from uncleansing. Do you remember? Seven days. Seven represents fulfillment, fullness, completion. And the significance of John using seven churches, real churches, real people. When we get into the seven churches, he's going to talk about things going on that's real to those seven churches. But the seven represents much more than just seven churches. It represents the fullness of the church of Jesus Christ. The fullness, if you will, of the seed of the woman. The fullness, the completion of it. And these seven churches, real churches, authentic churches, are representative of all the different types of churches throughout the church age. Please don't hear me undermining the reality of those seven churches. We're going to go through them individually. We're going to talk about them historically. We're going to talk about their situation, the strengths and the weaknesses that are laid out. But understand this, they are symbolic of all the churches in Asia, not just those seven, and of all the true churches of Jesus Christ throughout time. And we'll pick up on this. Have you ever noticed when you're looking at the seven churches, each of them closes with an application not just to the, those churches, but an application to not just a particular church, but to all the churches. That we would all do well to obey what has just been prophesied to this church. It speaks to everybody. And I don't think it's any accident that once you get past chapter 3, those seven churches disappear. At least from the text. Why? Because they're serving a greater purpose. They are representative of the church of Jesus Christ throughout all ages. So when John writes this book to the seven churches, Covenant Life Church, be encouraged. This is practical for you and I. It's dedicated to you and I as well, to Covenant Life Church. And when all, John goes on to tell us not just about the, the circumstances going on around the, the churches in that day, the persecution under the reign of Domitian. John also goes on to talk about his own struggles, what's going on in his life, in his situation. Look at verse 9 again. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John tells us quite a bit there. Again, historical context. He's an old man as he's writing here. He's, he's probably in his 90s. He's writing. He is the last living apostle. Uh, living in your 90s in this day was rare. It, it really was. All the other disciples and apostles that he grew up with, they're, they're dead. They're gone. And Domitian, uh, well, under the reign of Domitian, John at the age of 90 refused to call Domitian God and Lord. 
and as an apostle of Jesus Christ himself, the mission really went all out on John. Banishing him to the island of Patmos, 10 miles wide, or 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, 20 miles off the coast of Ephesus, where he is there enduring persecution for his faith, for his allegiance to Jesus. He's living in loneliness and alienation. I'm not suggesting that he's the only human on that island. We know that he wasn't, but we know that he's far from his home. He's far from his friends. He's far from the churches he's ministered to. He's most likely working in the marble quarries on the island under submission to Domitian. And that's why he calls himself your brother and partner in the tribulation. What they're going through in battling seed of the serpent, he is too. He's facing it himself. And let's be real honest. Who is this, the apostle of Jesus Christ? There's a part of this that makes no sense to us. We want to be real practical with this. There's a part of this that makes no sense. John is the only apostle of Jesus Christ left. Wouldn't he be better suited on the mainland? Serving these New Testament churches? Why would God allow him banished to the island of Patmos, so distant from everybody, and at the age of 90, no less? I mean, I don't think anyone in here is that age. No one here looks that age. <laughs> um, and we know the struggles we have physically, emotionally. Could you imagine an what it would be like in another 10, 15, 20 years? And in that state being banished off to an island, distant from everyone, distant from everything. We wonder why God would allow us to go through what we're going through, let alone what's something like this. Well, John tells us why God has allowed it. He says, I am suffering for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I think there's a message there for you and I. Again, we said the book of Revelation is the most practical book in the New Testament. What practical lessons can we learn from just the historical context? If we walk out of here and we just got dates and times and Roman emperors in mind, we're not paying attention to the, to the foundation that's being laid and how the book of Revelation is intended to come in and minister to us in that foundation. There's a couple of think, things that come out of here when we look at John. And the first is this. You and I are immortal until our work here is done. You and I are immortal until our work is done. John's the only living apostle still in 95 AD. Why did he live and nobody else did? Why is he still around? It was rare in that day. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to guess. The text itself delineates that for us. John says, the plan and purposes of God in my life is not finished yet. And on Patmos, he's been placed there on assignment by God. He's been placed in a situation, in a hardship, in a difficulty that none of us would want. 
to serve the Lord in that. He was spared throughout his life until the age of 90 with all the frailties and hardships and difficulties so that he would be banished to the island of Patmos so that he would write the book of Revelation to be delivered to the churches. Yep, the seven and all the others around it and to all the true church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages. All the other apostles, they'd fulfilled their duties. They were done. Everything that God had intended, John had still work to be done. So it is in our lives as well. If you're here, Genesis 3 world's not an easy world. It's a complicated world. It's a hard world. It's an exhausting world. It's a confusing world. It's a depressing world. Not only, sometimes it feels that way. But if you're here, whatever you're facing, it's part of the task. Your task isn't done. Especially as Christians, the fact that you're still alive. And if you're like me, you can think back to all kinds of close calls that could have been the final curtain, but weren't. That's not good luck. That is the plans and purposes of God. That final curtain didn't drop in that moment because your task has yet to be completed. That should be an encouragement to us. I'm just like you. I can wallow in despair, and I do. I can wallow in, I don't understand it, I don't get it, it's confusing, it hurts, I feel all alone, it makes no sense, I don't have any answers, why doesn't God just take me home? I would submit we've all been there. The fact of the matter is, we are kept safe, immortal, even in those situations. Because whether we understand it or not, our work is not yet done. Be encouraged this morning. I know it's hard. And I know we're exhausted. But there is a purpose in it all. We see that in John's life. Secondly, not only that you and I are immortal until our work is done, Christ is enough in your circumstance. Think about it this way. John's life, we know from history, is almost done. He's not there yet. He's writing the book of Revelation. He's only got a little while longer to go. But all throughout it all, he's a wise and a faithful servant. But in God's strange providence, and we, we saw that this morning in Psalm 104, didn't we? The God who creates is the God who stains, is the God who leads and, and purposes everything to come to pass. In God's strange providence, here John is in a very strange place, the island of Patmos. No friends, no family, without the amenities of home life that he's accustomed to. He's spending most of his days in the quarries doing hard labor. All he knows is loneliness and hardship and affliction and pain and feeling like 
Maybe he's been forgotten. Things, same things you and I. No temptation has overtaken John, but such as is common to us. And yet in the book of Revelation, that's one of the reasons I wanted to read through it in its entirety with you a few weeks ago. There is not a word of resentment. And I look at John and I don't get it. Because I'm a resentful guy myself. You may be too. But in John's apostolic epistle, as God is unveiling what previously was unknown, unveils for, in John's circumstance, his affliction, his heart, as John sees, is getting to see God's exclamation point to this battle that John is in on the island of Patmos, the, the seat of the woman, which is who he is, and the seat of the serpent, the battle, the struggle, the hardship. As he begins to see the triumph of Christ, there's not a word of complaining, not a word of resentment in the entire book, not a word of despair, not a word of sorrow. And he's not some robot. He's one who walked in his life with Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry. He's one who fixed his eyes upon Jesus every day of his life as an apostle ministering to the churches. And even on Patmos, he's still looking unto Jesus. And God pulls back the veil and says, let me show you something. Here's an aspect you didn't see previously, but it'll minister to you. It'll give you strength, encouragement, hope. Take a look at this. Even in the midst of your banishment on the island of Patmos and all the struggles that go with it. And so John, when he's writing to the seven churches, to you and I, this morning, he says to us, you and I personally, in verse 9, I, your brother and partner in the tribulation." in the hardships of your Genesis 3 life, in your battle against the seed of the serpent, where your plans don't seem to be God's plans, and things just don't make any sense. I, you're, I'm right there with you. I'm not talking to you from an ivory tower. I am in it myself. Nothing negative to say. He's accepted where he is. He knows he where God wants him to be. And he speaks about peace and I find it fascinating that right here even in the salutation what is he doing on the island with all the hardship he's going through he's worshiping the Lord he's lifting up his voice look at verse 4 to the, John to the seven churches that are in Asia don't think John sitting up in an ivory tower pen in hand life is grand he's writing this out island of Patmos alienated no family no friends no home life exhausted physically drained, 95 years old, working in a marble quarry. John, to the seven churches, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits, seven there again, we'll come back to that next week, who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Man, if ever there was a time to question God's faithfulness and Christ's faithfulness, we all know it. It's in those moments of despair, right? But what's he doing? He's worshiping the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us. He knows God's love. 
as he's looking unto Jesus, even in the midst of his circumstance. And has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you put the context together, you've got to be baffled by how John is responding there because that's the Christian response to affliction. He's worshiping the Lord. He's bursting into praise. If you didn't know the historical context, if you just read those words, that doesn't sound like a man who's in captivity, does it? That doesn't sound like a man who's 95 years old or in his mid-90s, who's day and night working in a marble quarry, who's physically exhausted, who hasn't seen his family in a long time, who feels alone, who feels alienated, who doesn't understand things. Same things, you wouldn't guess that those words come from somebody in his situation. But when you've seen Jesus, and I'm not talking about just you know, the way we talk about seeing, I mean, really, Jesus in his person, in his work. And you're looking unto him day and night for strength, for hope, and who he is and what he's done, and the various aspects of his person, which we're going to see in the book of Revelation. You can worship with joy, even in the worst of circumstances. Because Christ is enough. Christ is enough. My prayer for me is that God would help my unbelief. I can stand up here and say those words. I'm not standing up here saying I'm a, practici a perfect practitioner of those words. I'm trying. But Christ is enough, and we should marvel at the grace of God in John's life. I think John would say to us, there's a reason that we're going through what we're going through. God still afflicts us today with a purpose behind it. God afflicts us with various illnesses or various circumstances or hardships in order to get us closer to him. Because when I got nothing else, when I'm laid bare and I've got nothing but him, now all of a sudden, that's the Christian life. When you're 85 years old, I would suggest we shouldn't wish, wish to be 65 again. Be content with where you're at. Again, that's easy to say here on a Sunday morning in this room. Be content with where you're at. I know some of you probably hear that and you're, you want to come up here and punch me in the face for saying that. But that's what John is telling us here. This affliction, this burden that you're going through. John says, are you worshiping Christ in there? Are you looking to him in those burdens? Are you bowing before him, seeking you're my hope. Everything is you. That's the practical nature of the book of Revelation. To give us this view of Jesus so that even in our circumstances there's hope. And a third thing we see here God's sovereignty over all things, and yet he's not the author of evil. One of the things we see here and elsewhere in the Bible, it's Satan who's doing the persecuting. 
you got the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent is, is doing his thing. But make no mistake about it. At no point is the seed of the serpent, Satan himself, some renegade, almighty, all-powerful being who, has, who does whatever he wants. God is the one who allows Satan to do the things that he does to the church. Think about the story of Job. Job uh, Satan wreaked havoc there. But at no point was Satan not doing the will of God. <laughs> at no point was he not doing what God intended to take place. You see, one of the things we've got to understand is that ever since Genesis 3, there has been this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we're still experiencing that today. But at no point has God lost control. At no point has God not been sovereign over that. And that's why God can pass down, the Father can pass down to the Son, Jesus, who passes down to the angel, to John himself, to be distributed to you and I today, both in the first century and throughout church history, a book in which at times when we read through it, it looks like the seed of the serpent is kicking butt and winning the day. And yet he says, no, no, they don't even know it. They're playing right into my hands. We will get there. I have no idea when. But in Revelation chapter 17, verse 17, for God has put into their hearts, their, in that context being pagan kings and rulers, God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handling over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. They don't even realize it. The seed of the serpent has no understanding that even though it thinks it's strategically, tactically doing things that are undermining Christ and the gospel and God, he's playing right into the Father's hands. <laughs> and God is using him to accomplish his purposes. Brothers and sisters, we can hear that theologically. You've got to see that in your own life as well. When it looks like that seed of the serpent, is just wreaking havoc, and all is, all is lost, and everything's out of control, and maybe even God has even forgotten me or doesn't love me. Keep in mind, everything that's happening is part of a strategic plan and purpose of God for his glory, for your good, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. I'm like you. I look at the world around us today, and I tremble not just for me, for my children and for grandchildren that will one day come. Everything looks like it's horribly, chaotically out of control. And you begin to wonder, is anybody in control? Jesus is writing to the seven churches through John, and he's saying, I know it looks bleak. I know it looks bad. I know you don't understand. I know your life makes no sense. Take a look at this. Don't lose hope. I'm still in control. And all these bad things that are happening, I'm not the author of evil, but I'm at work using it. Look up to Jesus. There is hope and there is healing. I don't get all this. I, it's easy to stand up here and try to connect these dots. I'm going to default to where the Apostle Paul had to default, was he was thinking about these things. Romans 11, verse 33 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. And just from him and through him and to him be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. I can't get down into the weeds with you to try to connect all the dots. But we can get in line with John and say to you who are hurting this morning, take a look at the revelation, the apocalypsis, the disclosure, the unveiling, what was previously unknown. Take a look at Jesus Christ in this capacity. Put your charts away. <laughs> Put your newspaper away. And look to the seat of the woman and find hope and healing. As I close, we won't get here until next week. But it's in that context we're in Revelation 1. John to the seven churches that are in Asia holding it open with all your persecution under the reign of Emperor Domitian and all this going on in light of this verse 4 grace and peace that's the purpose of the book of Revelation that's the practical nature of it in the chaos which is our lives, our families, the world in which we live, the future, the unknown, the uncertainties. Look at this. And in this triumph of Christ, there is grace and peace in your life. I'd ask you to bow your heads this morning. We're going to talk more about that grace and peace next week. But we've got... Every New Testament letter opens up with so-and-so is the author, grace and peace to you, and we just rush through it. It was important for us this morning to see the grace and peace that is promised in light of the darkness of the historical context. This is a bleak, black, Genesis 3 world that the seven churches are growing up in and that we're going up, growing up in as well. But it's through this revelation of Christ and what's to come, that there is grace and peace for us this morning.